Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway this evening. So, so glad you're here. Just like to add my welcome to Chris's. Thanks so much for coming out. Um, I, I'm uh, going to finish this evening a sh- very short series we began a couple of weeks ago talking about food and uh, meals with Jesus. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says, It is because you must do everything for the glory of God, even your eating and your drinking. And I started the series by saying, uh, in all my years, I've never preached on food and drink. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody else preach on food or drink. And, and, and usually when it is spoken about, it's spoken in the negative. Don't eat too much, that's gluttony. And don't drink too much, that's being a drunkard. Uh, but the Bible tells us that the simplest of things, food and drink, eating and drinking, should be done to the glory of God. And what I've tried to do through this series is talk about the fact that food and drink are inherently good gifts given by God for our enjoyment. Actually, the very first words that God speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden are, you may eat freely. And the very last words, the last command of Scripture in Revelation chapter 22 is, drink freely. Now, the thing, I guess, is that with all things that God gives us, all of the good gifts that he's given to us, humanity living east of Eden as we do has managed to warp and twist them. Let me just take a moment and explain that phrase I just used then. I talked about humanity east of Eden. Actually, Chris mentioned the scripture this morning, but east of Eden is a biblical phrase, though some of you may know it as a best-selling novel by prize-winning author John Steinbeck. Steinbeck borrowed the phrase from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, where Cain, after having murdered Abel, is... um, judged by the Lord, and it says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And that phrase, east of Eden, has come to describe fallen man outside the presence and purposes of God. East of Eden, we take God's good gifts and good creation and manage to pervert and twist them. The book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7 and verse 29 says, God made men and women true and upright. We're the ones who have made a mess of things. And surely that's true, isn't it? We've made a mess of creation. We've made a mess of all his good gifts, of power. We've made a mess of sexuality. We've made a mess of the prosperity that he's given us. And truly we've made a real mess of eating and drinking. Now I'm incredibly aware in addressing this subject that I'm speaking to a a subject that is unbelievably sensitive to some people. Instead of being the blessing that God intended it to be, for some, food and or drink has become the bane of their existence. It's an area of just plain torture for them. Frederick Buechner, who again, Chris mentioned this morning, he's one of my favorite authors, and he's got a three-volume set that talks about his life. And he wrote incredibly powerfully and heart-wrenchingly about his daughter's battle with anorexia and its destructive uh, influence on them as a family. And I'm just quoting a phrase here that deeply touched me. He said, my anorectic daughter was in danger of starving to death, and without knowing it, so was I. 
I wasn't living my own life anymore because I was so caught up in hers. If on one particular day she took it into her head to have a slice of toast, say with her dietic supper, I was in seventh heaven. And if on another day she decided to have no supper at all, I was in hell. And anybody who's lived with an anorexic will know that story so powerfully. Something has gone dreadfully wrong east of Eden. You know, Americans spend $50 billion a year on dieting. That's five times more than is given to world missions. $50 billion trying to solve the problem of food gone wrong. Apparently, at any one moment in the US, 25% of men and 45% of women are on a diet of some form or other. I guess it could almost be amusing, except that it's not amusing, it's tragic, and it's tragically sad for so many people. I'm, I'm not a trained counselor, so I want to tread as carefully as I can here. I'm a pastor, and I've been in pastoral ministry for over four decades, and during that time, I've become something of a student of people. And I've observed, as many of you have too, eating and drinking east of Eden in people's lives. I've watched some people eat for comfort, we now use the phrase regularly, comfort food. We use it unapologetically, seemingly without the knowledge that it used to be used to describe people self-medicating to cover their pain. When things go wrong, when we're lonely or hurt, or even perhaps just bored, people turn to food as a place of refuge. We've changed Psalm 46 verse 1 from the Lord is our refuge and strength to chocolate is our refuge and strength and a very present help in times of trouble. Or for some people, it's a G&T and a rum and coke and a glass of red is our refuge and our strength and our very present help in time of trouble. And the brokenhearted so often console themselves sitting on a sofa with a tub of ice cream, eating east of Eden. I, I suspect it's a very well-known fact within the field of psychotherapy that there is a powerful link between food and drink and a lack of intimacy. For some people, the issue is not comfort, the issue is control, and food has degenerated into an instrument of control. Again, I don't feel particularly qualified to, and I guess this isn't the place for an in-depth analysis of this phenomenon, but most counselors readily admit that eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia, the purging and binging, arise out of a need to control at least something in life. Feeling robbed of the ability to control their lives in general, some people opt for controlling one area in particular, their intake of calories. And as Frederick Beekner says, they make life heaven or hell for people around them. For other people, food becomes an issue of image. The excessive, obsessional focus on body image reduces and perverts the good gift of food for so many people in our culture. Supermodel Kate Moss famously said, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Some people become almost OCD in the way they relate to their calorific intake, and their bathroom scales become a virtual altar where their identity and image hangs in the balance on a daily basis, and it gives a whole new meaning to the biblical phrase, you have been found, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Any enjoyment that God intended in the good gift of food and drink has long since gone, and we have run the gauntlet of finding solace in food to either fill our empty spaces or refusing to eat food to hopefully create some empty spaces. 
Some people find food and drink to help. Uh, they, find, they use food and drink to establish their identity. And like you, I've met people where the food they eat has become a twisted point of pride. We only eat organic, wholesome food. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting it's wrong or prideful to eat organic. Perhaps I'm just a bit of an old cynic, but sometimes it seems to me that for some, what, ostensibly, uh, what is ostensibly health reasons uh, for eating in a particular way sometimes becomes more about proving the fact that we're enlightened, we're astute, we're one of the woke brigade, we know what's going on in the world. For some, it's cordon bleu, haute cuisine and gourmet restaurants that go to prove that you're an urbane sophisticate worthy of your place in the world. And you can tell a cheap Merlot from a good one from 10 meters away. And somehow, in our twisted way, we think that that makes us something more significant and more discerning than other people. Eating and drinking east of Eden has got twisted and bent and broken. You say, Don, are you suggesting it's wrong to appreciate fine wine and gourmet food? That's not what I'm suggesting. I just know that east of Eden, things that we could do as part of being in God's good creation can become twisted into a means of somehow trying to secure our image, our identity. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at a meal. He's at a Pharisee's house, and verse 1 tells us one time when Jesus went for the Sabbath meal with one of the top leaders of the Pharisee. So he's in a Pharisee's home, and verse 7 through 11 in the message translation reads like this. He went on to tell a story to the guests around the table, noticing how each had tried to elbow into the place of honor. He said, when someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited by the host. Then he'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. And red-faced, you'll have to make your way to the very last table, the only place left. When you're invited to dinner, go and sit at the last place. Then when the host comes, he may very well say, friend, come up to the front. That will give the dinner guests something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you will become more than yourself. So the table that Jesus is at and is observing is meant to be about friendship and intimacy and loyalty. It's meant to be about the things that we talked about last week, and in this case, it's degenerated into a means to a really perverted end. It had become, in this context, a means to advertise or reinforce social status and social hierarchy. And Jesus noticed people elbowing to try and get to a, to a higher place. Status-seeking people who were very selective about their dinner guest lists were making elaborate preparations for people that they wanted to be in good standing with. They wanted to impress, in the hope, of course, that there might be a reciprocal invitation. Of course, I know that that only happens in cultures like that. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be horrible to live in a culture obsessed with image and soak through to the bone with the need to be seen with the right people? I'd hate to live in a culture like that. I mentioned last week that meals like this one in Luke 14 are profoundly symbolic in the way status and position are secured and advertised. The seating arrangements, 
The eating rituals all sent a clear message to those who were in attendance as to where they stood on the totem pole, and no pun intended, where they were in the food chain. The closer you were to the host, the more important you were. The portion of bread that you received shouted loudly as to how you were viewed. If you were in the lower seat, you got what was the under portion of the bread, the heel of the bread. The middle people, of course, got the middle of the bread. And the top people at the table got the upper crust. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago, that's where that term comes from. When we talk about the aristocrats being the upper crust, it came from that uh, idea of what portion of bread you got. As Jesus sits at the table, he cuts to the very heart of what he sees as the perversion of God's good gifts and good intention in eating and drinking. And if I could paraphrase, he's saying, you are using food and drink given by God as a good gift to you, but you're using it as a blunt instrument to try and establish your identity, to maintain your image. You're trying to use food and drink as a key to open what you understand to be an inner ring. Now, I know that some of you have heard me talk about the inner ring before, but it's so relevant in this context that unapologetically I'm going to repeat myself. The tendency of human beings to pursue an inner ring, what they perceive to be an inner ring, is a very human phenomenon. Probably nobody has spoken to it better, more powerfully than C.S. Lewis. Human communities are characterized by groupings. Sociologically, such groupings are unavoidable. They are a normal part of what makes you and I human. They are normal and I think in many cases morally neutral. Whenever you have more than a couple of people thrown together, you'll have rings in and outer. Whether it's your place of work, your industry, your club, your faith community, your sports team, your patch gang, or your music group or band, there are always groups that form within a larger group. Think of the Beatles, there was an inner ring. John Lennon and Paul McCartney, there was an outer ring, George Harrison and um, Ringo Starr. Those rings aren't normally formal structures. Now, at your place of work, there may well be a wall chart that formally defines authority and power, and at times, that chart might accurately depict the real inner ring. You know, surprise, surprise, but sometimes the wisest, most energetic people actually do occupy the highest places in the organization. However, you and I both know that formal charts don't always reflect reality. They aren't always an accurate representation of the real authority and the innerness of the organization. All of us know and have probably worked in settings with the people uh, where the people who had the right answers were working for the person who didn't even know the right questions. Mostly, the inner rings are an informal grouping. There are no formal admissions or expulsions. Most often in a setting, you gradually discover that an inner ring exists, and you're often made aware of it in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways that you are outside it. It's not always easy to identify who's inside and who's outside. Some people are obviously in, others are obviously out, and there's always people on the margins moving either in or out. Some people think they're in, and it's obvious to all others that they're not. And those try-hard people provide endless amusement to the people who are really the insiders. 
As I say, all of this is probably sociologically obvious. Personal friendships will always, and I think should always develop. Even Jesus had an inner ring that constituted Peter, James, and John. Now what C.S. Lewis so powerfully does is he points out that inner rings are normal and morally neutral, but he observes that they can become incredibly dangerous and perverting. I think most of us, if we honestly considered this, would have to admit that the desire to be found inside what we at the time perceived to be an inner ring constituted one of the dominant drives of our lives at a particular point in our lives. And what Lewis said was this obsessive desire to be on the inside, in the inner ring, becomes one of the main springs of human action. It is most certainly what Jesus is dealing with in this story, as he warns people not to pervert the use of the table as a means of seeking to be an insider, of seeking to be in the inner ring. The illicit and ungenerous pursuit of membership in an inner ring has been responsible for so much struggle, so much competition, graft, envy, and disappointment in human life. Perhaps it was a ring that finding ourselves on the outside of, we responded to the insiders with mockery and scorn. And sometimes our scorn of those insiders reminds me a little bit of Aesop's fable, The Fox and the Grapes. You know, the fox was trying valiantly, but ultimately without success, to gather some grapes off the vine. Rather than admit defeat, he ultimately stomps off claiming that the grapes were sour anyway. And that's where we get our phrase, sour grapes, from. The irony is, as long as we are driven and governed by our pursuit of an inner ring, it will always elude us. You're actually trying to peel an onion, and even when you succeed, you'll find that there's nothing there in the end. Merely wanting to be in the in-group is a pleasure that can never last. You will find that circles do not have from within the charm that they seem to have from the outside. And the rainbow will always be ahead of you. The old ring that you once desired and pursued will end up the drab wallpaper for your endeavor to enter the next, just beyond you, new ring. That's how life goes. People who are driven to enter the inner ring can never afford to be unselfish and generous as far as their table goes. The table becomes an instrument in this perverted game. The desire to be on the right side of that invisible line often prompts us to acts in ways that without that desire we would never have contemplated. And Lewis makes the comment, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. The obsessional pursuit of membership in the inner ring is antithetical to and destructive of the generous open table that God intended because it inevitably involves exclusion. There would be no attraction to an inner ring if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless people, most people, were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident, it is of the essence. In this story, Jesus is speaking pointedly to the human obsession to be on the inside, to be in the inner ring. And he's saying to these social climbing, jostling guests, the quest for the inner ring will break your hearts 
unless you break it. Lewis then went on and observed, unless you conquer or until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. You must not take God's good gift of food and drink of the table and try and make it serve your deep insecurities. So having addressed the social climbing, jostling guests and their pursuit of the inner ring and their willingness to use food and drink, God's good gifts, and twist them as we who live east of Eden so often do. Once he'd done that, Jesus then turns to address the guests. He turns to the host, and he says this in verse 12 to 14. Then he turned to the host, when you put on a dinner, he said, don't invite invite friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will return the invitation. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the godly, God will reward you for inviting those who can't repay you. Now, this story just needs a little bit of cultural unpacking. First of all, we need to see that Jesus is speaking here and using what is classic Semitic idiom. He isn't saying you must never invite your relatives around for a meal, although I suspect there'd be some people who'd be quite happy with a literal interpretation at that point. This is, by the way, the same idiom that Jesus used when he said, unless you hate your father and your mother, you can't be my disciple. Now, obviously, he wasn't suggesting that you do that actively. It's a Semitic idiom. It's it's not to be interpreted literally. However, he goes on, secondly, uh, to talk or we should talk rather, about the culture at this time being dominated by what we call the patronage system. In such a system, there were patrons and clients. Higher class individuals acted as patrons to people beneath them on the social ladder. They were the clients. And there were well understood obligations flowing both up and down the ladder. In such a setup, the only way to get anything done was to know somebody who was higher up the ladder than you, who might be able, possibly, if you can get, encourage some favor with them, uh, open some doors for you. In turn, of course, it would be your responsibility to advance their interests in some way. Clients invited patrons to their dinners and feasts in the hope that they might, in return, get an invitation to their parties. Now, the problem is these tables aren't about genuine friendship, genuine intimacy, commitment and allegiance and friendship. These aren't without strings hospitality. This is about strategic networking. You worked your contacts up and down the ladder. At best, it was networking. At worst, it amounted to crass manipulation. And what Jesus is saying is this is not the biblical table. This is eating east of Eden. This is not why God gave the good gifts of food and drink. And Jesus cuts to the heart of the patronage system, saying, in essence, my disciples will reject these manipulative, ungenerous ways of using people and of perverting the good gifts that I've given them, of perverting the table. At the heart of a biblical table is, first of all, an attitude of heart. It is a heart that strives toward inclusion rather than exclusion. I I think it's a heart that recognizes the tendency and temptation to be driven by the desire to be in an inner ring, and it rejects that. 
It acknowledges the inherent danger of pursuing inner rings, and it intentionally makes the rings that are normal and natural porous and open, easily entered into rather than exclusionary and cliquish. This isn't just a passive accepting of people entering your space, your ring, but it actively extends a welcome to outsiders, the lame, the blind, the people who can't repay you. It seeks out strangers and makes them friends. Ahalan wa sahalan is the Arabic phrase. Come in, be part of family. There's a place of ease here. Sometimes those inner rings of our friendships make it incredibly difficult for people to break in. And we have our own little meals and people can't enter the space. And that's what Jesus is speaking about. He's saying, don't, don't use food like that. Don't use the table like that. The table is supposed to be open and porous with people entering in. When you actively reach out to include the stranger, the outsider, the poor, the marginalized, then you have understood something of the purpose of food and drink at God's table. Secondly and finally, okay, it's, it's an attitude of heart. Secondly, it is a practice that we have to enter into, whereby we say, I'm going to open my table to people. And you work out how to do that. You be strategic and intentional in terms of inviting people to the table. Perhaps people that won't serve your interests, that won't make your social status any greater, that sometimes perhaps, in fact, if people saw you eating with them, your social status may go down. For those of you who, uh, who remember at least high school, there were people to be seen with and there were people not to be seen with. And when you were seen with the people who were not to be seen with, you, you went down in the social status. And so much of that afflicts us as a society. And Jesus is speaking to the heart of that and saying, not with my disciples. My disciples go out of their way for the broken, for the socially awkward, that nobody else would want to be around or engage in conversation or have a coffee and a donut with. But for you, I'm asking of you, open your table to people like that. So it's an attitude of heart, it's a practice that we enter into. Now for some people, they say, oh, you know, Don, that's really scary for me. I'm not particularly good at hospitality. There's no way I can set the table like, you know, like I went to that other person's table and they were so brilliant with hospitality and it was so wonderful and I just can't do that. Friends, you don't have to do that. It's not about how well the table is set and the gourmet food. It's about the friendship, the warmth. It's about the loyalty and the allegiance that the table speaks of. And friends, that can be done over bread, butter, honey and a cup of tea. For some, you say, well, Don, it's just too costly. I just don't have anything in my budget to allow for entertainment. It doesn't have to be expensive. Nobody's asking you for her cuisine. You know, share fish and chips, seriously. Go halves, open your table. It doesn't have to be either scary or costly. Some of you may say, well, Don, I'm just too busy. Then can I suggest to you boldly that you might be busier than God wants you to be? because this is what we're supposed to be as disciples. We're supposed to set a table that welcomes people into our space. We see, Don, I've got a really busy job and I'm with people all day and, and you know, when I have time, I just like to be with my friends in the cafe and that's where I recharge. 
and I just don't want other people in my space. Well, that has to be challenged, I'm sorry. I understand there are times when we need recharging, we need refreshing. I'm not saying every time, but I'm talking about extending our borders beyond what we are comfortable with. Listen, ministry of any form is never either comfortable or convenient. Okay, it just, it just isn't. But you have to decide whether you will be a ministering person or whether you'll be a selfish person whether food and drink will be shared at a table where people are welcomed or whether you will keep your ring tight and, and impervious to the outsider. Jesus opened the table for you and me. He opened the Father's table for you and me. We were outsiders. Ephesians says that you were outside the covenant, you were outside the presence of God, but that the blood of the Son of God opened the possibility of you coming in and being a bona fide, genuine member of the family. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and what? I'll eat with him. And there'll be the friendship and the loyalty and the allegiance and the commitment. I've opened the table for you. How can you possibly not there by open it to others. Doesn't that sound something like Jesus when he said to the man who had been forgiven much and then refused to forgive, you wicked servant. How could you possibly not forgive him that small amount when I forgave you that huge amount? Can you imagine Jesus saying, how could you possibly close your table off from those people when I opened a magnificent table for you? Meals enact mission. They enact mission because they enact grace. And we're supposed to be a people filled with grace. So through this series, one of the things that I wanted you to think about was rather than just eat and drink without even thinking, imagine what does eating and drinking in my life look like when it's done to the glory of God? What would that possibly look like? And how could we do it? if we're a flat with three or four other people, if we're a family, if we're a couple, what would it look like for us to enact a mission and enact grace through our table, through food and drink? And if you've thought about that intentionally, then I would consider this series a success. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.